pray. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We know you still have a purpose for the rain. We know that you have a purpose for every season in our lives. We enjoy the fall partly because it's so fleeting. It's only here for maybe a month. Around here, it seems like summer goes directly into winter (laughs) with only a few weeks of the fall. So Lord, we thank you for this brief but beautiful season. And it reminds us of the different seasons in our lives. Some last longer than others. Some are more fleeting than others. But Lord, you have a purpose for each and every one of them in our lives. You lead us. You teach us. You convict us. You discipline us. Lord, we're thankful for each and every season because that means that you not only love us, but you walk hand in hand with us through each of those seasons. There's never a time where you abandon us. There's never a time when you leave us alone. But not only are you walking right beside us, but you are walking within us through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we never want to forget that. We never want to take that for granted. We thank you so much for that. And the movement of your Holy Spirit, both within our individual hearts and within this church. We thank you for growing us spiritually. We thank you for the numerical growth that we've been experiencing. All the glory goes to you. And now, Lord, I, I, I thank you uh, for the w- members that we've welcomed in this week and that we'll welcome in uh, hopefully next week, that you would uh, bless their families, that you would uh, continue to lead them and grow them and teach them. Lord, we thank you for hope. We thank you for peace. We thank you for joy because it's in you and only you that we can find any of those things. You are our only source. Lord, we thank you for your word that reveals to us your truth, what you want us to know, so that we may live this life as glorifying to you as possible. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As long as humanity has existed, I'm pretty sure there have been pickup sports games by kid in a, fleet, in a field somewhere, either with a ball made out of animal skin or with arrows or hoops or something some kind of game that was made up where a group of kids simply gets together and competes with one another. When I was growing up, we played pickup basketball games in someone's driveway or if a friend had a halfway decently sized backyard, a pickup game of football, or if a kid just had a fence or a wall or something to kick a soccer ball against for a goal, a pickup game of soccer. There were general rules that everyone played with, but there was never any ref to call the game, right? It's just kids just policed each other. Sometimes that went okay, and sometimes that didn't. But there was always, 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 I think you guys can agree, agree with me, there were always two different kinds of kids during every kind of pickup game, right? There was always the kid who called every kind of foul under the sun during a basketball game, so he had as many chances to shoot free throws as he could. He couldn't score any other way, so he just kept calling fouls. Nobody liked that kid, right? (laughs) Then there was always the kid who was the complete opposite and played as if there were no rules at all. He'd try to get away with everything that should be called a penalty on. I always found that kid always seemed to have his sights set on me for some weird reason. I don't know what it was. I I think I was probably clotheslined more than any other kid playing sports. 
a junior soccer league, clotheslined. Game of kickball in gym class, clotheslined. A flag football game in Bible college, clothesline. <laughs> I just think the bigger guy was curious as to see how far he could launch me when I was running as fast as I could without looking where I was going. And then boom, all of a sudden I felt like Charlie Brown and all the holiday TV specials, having the football pulled away at the last second and flipping through the air. You either land on my land on the ground, either flat on my back or flat on my face, a few yards away from where I had been a moment before. There's always the one kid who plays the game as if there are no penalties. Some of those kids grow up to be politicians. <laughs> Sorry. In a strangely detrimental way to the church, though, the Corinthians were acting as if there were no penalties to what they were doing every time they gathered together for worship and especially in partaking of the Lord's Supper. And if you'll remember from the past couple of weeks, what was going on was that the church, as the church met in the house of one of the more wealthy congregants, the homeowner was handpicking other high society congregants and seating them in the dining room. The rest of the congregation was relegated to the main lobby or atrium of the house. What made matters worse was that the homeowner was giving the better parts and portions of the meal to those in the dining room while giving the inferior parts and portions of the meal to those most likely of the lower classes out in the atrium. While the high society members dined and wined and dined in the dining room, the rest out in the atrium were forced to watch while they ate what they knew were the leftovers. What an affront to the impartiality of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what an affront to the unity of the church, right? No wonder Paul was so irate towards them so far in chapter 11, and why he even came right out and told them in verse 17 that whenever they gathered for worship, it was for the worse of the cause of Christ. Not for the better, for the worse. Those are some pretty strong words, aren't they? To use against the church. Those committing and going along with this real harm being done to Christ's church were living and acting and worshiping as if there were no penalties to their behavior. They thought that as they were technically God's children through salvation found in Jesus' death and resurrection, that they were free from any sort of penalty. In our verses today, we're going to see Paul tell them that that kind of thinking was the farthest from the truth. And we'll see what the purpose of God's loving discipline is in our lives today. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the extremes. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you didn't, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I want everybody to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be starting in verses 27 through 28. And we read, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That was our scripture reading a few minutes ago. 
in this context, the unworthy manner that Paul refers to here is that behavior we just got done talking about, that toxic spillover from the culture around the Corinthians that took the drunkenness and gluttony and chaos of the pagan temple celebrations and applied it to the observance of communion, thus desecrating it and taking what was supposed to be a unifying practice of the church and uniting them with God and with each other and using it to disunify them from each other. In our context today, whenever we gather for the observance of the Lord's Supper or communion, which will take place next week, we are to examine ourselves to see if we're coming to the table in an unworthy manner. Are we harboring sin that we refuse to get right with God? Are we holding a grudge against a brother or sister in Christ? Do we see ourselves as better than a brother or sister in Christ? Are we holding on to something so tightly that we refuse to entrust it to God's sovereign will? Remember the power of the Lord's Supper that we talked about last week. All the meaning that is wrapped up in Jesus identifying his body with the bread and his blood with the wine. All the meaning that is rooted in the Jewish observance of Passover. Remember that by Jesus saying that this Passover unleavened bread was identified with his body, the bread of suffering, as it's referred to in the Jewish law, he was not only declaring that he would suffer, and, but that those he shared it with, including us, would suffer for his sake, that his suffering would deliver us from our sin, hopelessness, and darkness, and that one day he would return to fully deliver us from the suffering and darkness of this world. And that's all wrapped up in partaking of the bread, the body that was broken for us. Remember that by Jesus saying that the Passover communal wine was identified with his blood, that he was declaring that he was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, and that the shedding of his blood would protect his followers from eternal condemnation, that he was declaring he was the atonement sacrifice once and for all, not just covering our sins, but removing them completely from us in God's eyes. And that he was declaring that he was instituting that prophesied new covenant. The shedding of Christ's blood on the cross, as the author of Hebrews put it, meant that Jesus is the new mediator, the lawyer, the mediator of the new covenant between God and humanity, based on the living word, based on the grace of God, that no one who has been called into it can fall out of it. The old covenant's curse has been swallowed up by the new covenant's eternal blessing. And that's what we have the joy of being under. What a breathtaking, tremendous gift that has been extended to us. Amen? Whenever we gather together to partake in the bread and wine of communion, Paul says in the verse right before this morning's passage, we too declare all of this meaning and all of this power until Jesus comes back for us. Whenever we gather together to partake in the bread and wine of communion, we declare our oneness with the Trinitarian Godhead and with each other as the one body of Christ. Whenever we gather together to partake in the bread and wine of communion, something spiritual spiritual happens, something powerful happens. We connect with Jesus in an intimate 
way as he did with his disciples the night he was betrayed. When he divulged to them that he had been eagerly anticipating sharing this meal with them. That never changed. Each and every time we gather together to observe the Lord's table, that still has never changed. He still continues to eagerly anticipate sharing that with us. When we gather together to observe the Lord's Supper, His Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit still eagerly joins with us and moves among us. It's a special time between us and God and between each other with the Holy Spirit's bond of peace. So does God ever take this lightly? Does God take, ever take this flippantly? Absolutely not. Should we ever take this lightly or flippantly? Absolutely not. In fact, Paul says next that this is such a powerful and special time with our Creator, King, and Savior that in this context, the Corinthians' flippant treating of it was causing some real and powerful detriment to themselves. In verses 29 through 30, he writes, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge himself the body rightly. For this reason... Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That, of course, is a euphemism for death. If the Corinthians were not examining themselves honestly and partaking in communion in an unworthy manner, they faced some real penalties. Paul says, look around you, if you don't believe me, guys. Look around you. Do you think that those who are seemingly randomly getting sick or too weak to do anything for the kingdom of God or who are outright dying or having these things happen to them for no reason? Now, before we go any further, I want to be absolutely clear that I by no means am saying that anyone who gets sick or very weak or even dies in an untimely fashion is guilty of some atrocity. That is not what I'm saying at all. God has his reasons for allowing different trials to enter our lives. And we have to trust Him with those reasons. But at the same time, we also have to understand and hold in our minds the very real possibility that if as part of Christ's body, if we continue to blatantly sin and are causing harm to the reputation of the church, that these things are not off limits to God as He sees fit. Now that's the extreme, but it's something we need to have a healthy fear of. There's a reason for that. Not to unduly scare us, but to serve as a grace of God, as the first wall of protection for us in dealing with temptation. If we know that, what we do will only result in God's discipline of us, and may even result in what Paul describes in verse 30, you know what happens? We are suddenly a lot less apt to give in to that temptation, aren't we? It's like when you were a little kid and you're tempted to do something, but you don't do it for fear of the discipline you would be inviting upon yourself from your parents. We are also children of our Heavenly Father. And not wanting to invite these extreme forms of discipline into our lives should serve as a powerful deterrent to giving in to sin. Paul says next, come on guys, this is common sense. Verse 31, I'm not speaking into a vacuum here. This is common sense. But if we judged ourselves rightly, 
we would not be judged. We wouldn't have to face God's discipline. In other words, if we are careful to not fall into temptation and sin, and if we are careful to get everything we need to get right with God, right with Him, we don't need to worry about God's discipline. God is not watching you with eagle eyes poised to smite you at every turn. He created the family system, ideally, to be a reflection of Himself. Not only are we as individuals created in the image of God and are thus reflective, albeit in a limited way, of some of his attributes, but the family system with its roles for the husband and father and the wife and mother along with their children is reflective of who God is. And so just as a good earthly father only disciplines when correctional instruction is not first heeded, God, as our heavenly father, will only discipline when correctional instruction is not first heeded. If we read and learn from and study his word and follow the commandments written in it and listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit within us, Paul says here, we don't need to fear the discipline of God and especially the extreme forms of discipline just described in verse 30. It's just common sense. The problem is that we don't heed, obey, or follow the instruction we read and are taught through God's servants, right? That's what the problem is. The problem is that we don't listen. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. If we continue down the road of disobedience, we only have the invitation of God's discipline in our lives to look forward to. That's what we have. But here's the key to understanding everything about God's discipline in our lives. What we can expect from God as our Father and what He expects of us as His children. That's our second point this morning is the expectations. This is the key to understanding everything about God's discipline. Verse 32. But when we are judged, what's going on is we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. That's what's going on here. There's a big and clear difference between God's judgment and condemnation and God's discipline. God's judgment and condemnation is reserved for the world and its unbelievers. Jesus told Nicodemus in reference to himself, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Contrastingly, for us as believers in Jesus, covered by the blood of the Lamb, we have this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. This all goes hand in hand with what Paul says here in verse 32. Because of Jesus taking our place on the cross for our sin, if we accept that gift as substitutionary payment on our behalf, we do not have to fear the eternal judgment and condemnation that results in eternal banishment and punishment. That has already been sealed for us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul will tell the same church later on, Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, as a down payment 
guaranteeing. I love that word. Guaranteeing what is to come. That's a done deal. If you have accepted Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection on your behalf, paying for your sinfulness, asking Him for that forgiveness, and committing the rest of your life to following Him, you do not have to wonder ever again if you will go to heaven when you die or not. It's been sealed for you. If you have the Holy Spirit, it's been decided. We have no fear of the eternal judgment of God, and I think we can all give a hearty amen to that, right? Amen. Judgment and condemnation is reserved only for those who are not God's children, bought with the blood of Jesus. So what is reserved for God's children, bought with the blood of Jesus, is this. Being adopted into God's family having the creator of the will of God, the protection of Almighty God, and the provision of the creator of the universe as your Father. You can come to Him at any time through the mediation of Jesus to receive His eternal comfort, His eternal joy, His eternal peace. You can come to Him with your requests along with your praise and thanksgiving and even the desires of your heart. And the joy that we have as believers in Jesus is that even if you had a horrible or neglectful or absentee earthly father, you have mighty God as your perfect and perfectly good and perfectly merciful and perfectly instructional father. You have not been abandoned. You have a perfect father. And so because of that, what goes along with that is that we have the gift of God's fatherly discipline in our lives as well. He will not allow us to walk through this earth aimlessly because He is a perfect and loving and good Father. Have you ever thought about it that way? God's discipline as being His grace upon you? Why on earth can we see it that way? As being God's grace, as being His gift towards us. Because you know what God's discipline means? It means that somebody cares about you. It means that somebody cares so much about you that he wants to protect you and give you the most blessed life you could have on this earth. The author of Hebrews says exactly this. This is where I'm, all, where I'm getting it all from. I'm not making this up. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. That just comes with the territory. Whoever heard of a child who's never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all his children, it means you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. So his discipline in your life is proof that you are one of his children. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best that they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we may, might share in his holiness. 
No discipline. Let's just be honest. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. You don't say, well, this is the best time of my life right now. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. It's a blessing. Like I mentioned before, a good earthly father instructs first and then only disciplines when that instruction is not obeyed. Discipline without instruction does not teach. It does not grow. And since we are only reflections of God, God is the perfect Father, and so much more does He want to teach and grow us, not simply discipline us for discipline's sake. Again, God is not sitting on high, waiting and watching for us to mess up so He can finally punish you. Oh, I've been waiting for this. No. Firstly, He has already given us what He expects of us as His children. He's already given it to us right here. He will not allow us to be unruly. Whenever Cheery and I take our kids somewhere new, we try to sit them down and explain to them what they can expect, what we're expecting of their behavior, and what they can expect if they don't follow that. God has already given us His expectations of us as His obedient children. We can't tell God, hey man, I want you to be everything you should be as my perfect father, but I'm purposely not going to be everything I should be as your obedient child, and you just have to deal with that. It doesn't work that way. God is God. You're not. It's a very simple truth. God is God. We're not. So... We talked about the extremes. We talked about the expectations that we can have of God and what He expects of us. And thirdly, we have the experiences. When God disciplines us, it's not because He even likes it. He disciplines us because He wants to grow us. If we're going through a trial that we think could be God's discipline upon us, it's because He wants to get our attention. It's because He loves us more than we could ever know. That's why He's disciplining us. He's trying to save us from going any further down a road to destruction. He's trying to yell out to us to come back to His safety. So when we hit rock bottom, we can't think, how could a good God do this to me? That's not the question we should be asking. Really, what's really going on is God's last attempt to rescue you. That's what's really going on. When a good earthly father gives instruction and sets up boundaries, it's not because he doesn't want his kids to have any fun. It's because he's more often than not been through the pain of what can happen when boundaries are not heeded and he's trying to spare his kids from going through the same thing. Right? God, in His infinite wisdom, knows everything that can happen. He knows all the different possibilities of what can happen when His boundaries are pushed. And so He instructs and disciplines us to protect us from the pain of pushing those boundaries and that those pu- pushing those boundaries can and will only result in. So when we find ourselves in a trying time, the first questions we must always ask, first of all, we must remove ourselves a little bit, take a step back and look at what's going on in our lives and ask ourselves the questions, 
what might God be teaching me through this? Let me just take a step back from the emotional part of it and what I can only see and ask myself the questions, what could God be teaching me through this? How could God be growing me in this? And even, is there any area of my life I have not yet gotten right with Him yet? And is this God trying to prevent me from going any further? Could this be His discipline in my life? Not every trial we experience is God's discipline in our lives. Not every trial in our lives is God's discipline. But we must always be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's revealing to us of whether or not it is, and then making it right. As we talked before in the past, if we repeatedly don't listen to God, trying to get our attention, He may use even more extreme forms of discipline. Like we read in verse 30, like a sickness or a weakness, as one last attempt to rescue us from our disobedient and destructive behavior. And there's even the possibility that God removes us outright from the game through death to prevent further destruction against His reputation and the reputation of His holy church. But the solution is simple. Know our Heavenly Father's expectations and do our best through the Holy Spirit's empowerment to obey them. That's the very simple solution. Know what our Heavenly Father's expectations are and do our best through the Holy Spirit's empowerment to obey them. You guys know I'm not a prosperity preacher up here. But in the, the Bible clearly and undeniably speaks time and time again about the blessings connected to a life in obedience to our Father. God does not let that behavior go unrewarded. Our Father rewards those who seek and obey His commandments as best they can. So, let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. Do you want the most blessed life you possibly could have on this earth? I wasn't enthusiastic at all. Some of you need to wake up. Do you, do you want the most blessed life you possibly could have on this earth? Amen. Yes. Seek God and seek to obey His commandments as best as the Holy Spirit empowers you to. It's that simple. It's not any more complicated than that. It's very simple. Earthly fathers reward their kids' good behavior, right? That only makes sense. Earthly fathers reward their kids' good behavior. We're not to obey God simply because we want reward, but because we love Him. But we also read, and it is impossible to please God without faith, Anyone who wants to come to Him must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who sincerely seek Him. Similarly, we read, so if you sinful people know how to give good... I like how Jesus puts that. If you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your perfect and holy Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who seek Him? Therefore... Paul ends this section by instructing the Corinthians in how they should gather together to partake in the Lord's Supper. Verses 33 through 34. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. It's common sense. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. 
The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Do what you practically need to do at home. Eat what you need to do at home so you don't invite God's discipline on the whole body. If you're hungry, eat at home so you're not suffering, you're you're stuffing your face and taking food away from others. It's very practical instruction. In the same way, God has given us very practical instruction. He has adopted us into his family, and we have all that God is. All of that God is is opened up to us through Jesus Christ. All of who he is is opened up to us. What that also includes is his authority over us as our father and our following his expectations as our father. If, you, if we refuse to, out of his love for us, he will not allow us to keep going down a road to destruction and will stop at nothing to get our attention. That's how much he loves us. Very often that will come in the form of trials. And if we stop for a second in the middle of that trial and ask ourselves the question, is God trying to get my attention about something? The Holy Spirit will reveal the answer. Very often, though, we already know the answer. If we're going through a trial, we ask ourselves, is God trying to reveal something to us? We already know the answer to that. Because we already know we haven't gotten something right with Him yet. Listen to God's voice at that point and get that right with Him at that moment. That's why, whether God's discipline or not, the Apostle James tells us that we can be joyful Joyful. Can you imagine that? Joyful in any and every trial we go through in this life. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind, doesn't matter what it is, come your way, consider it an opportunity not for just joy, but great joy. No matter what we're going through, we should be the most joyful people walking around this planet. We should be the most joyful people. Why? Because you know someone cares about you immensely, no matter what you're going through. It's not reflective of his love towards you. We can be joyful with great joy because the trial shows us someone loves us. It doesn't make sense on the surface, but it means either one of two things or both. The trial either means that God loves you so much that he wants to get your attention to stop you from destructive behavior. Or the trial means that God loves you so much He's giving you the opportunity to grow and learn from Him in that trial. Or both. Either way, God means that trial not to destroy your life, but to grow you. He means it to grow you. James goes on to say exactly that. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So don't run away from it. Don't blame God for it. Don't shake your fist at God. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You come out the other side in a deeper relationship with God. You come out the other side with deeper faith. You come out the other side more like Jesus. You come out the other side a spiritually stronger person than ever before. And you come out the other side with a praise story to tell others about of God's provision and His sustaining and His empowering and His healing and His peace in the midst of all that. That's what comes out of all that and that's why it's an opportunity of great joy no matter what the trial is. This clear biblical truth is a source 
of great peace, is it not? Nothing God puts us through in this life is meant for our harm. It's only and always meant for our good. We already read that in Hebrews 12, and Paul tells the Romans, we know that God causes everything, whatever we're going through, whatever the circumstances and situations are, everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. We have a perfect Father, and He will stop at nothing to show us how much He loves us, especially when we're going down a bad path. So let us listen to Him. Let us show our love to Him by living for Him. And let us always, always, always trust that God knows what's best for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words of truth and also words of encouragement. Lord, I pray that if anybody knows there's something that is not right between them and You, I pray that they would get it right with You right now, today, so that they can have the most blessed life they can have on this earth. Lord, we thank You for Your promises and Your Word. We thank You that You promise that You are our good and perfect and holy and loving Father. And because of that, You will not leave us to wander aimlessly through this earth, but You will instruct us you give us what you expect of us, and you will correct us when needed. And Lord, we're thankful for that, because we thank you that you love us so much. You want us to succeed. You want us to grow. You want us to be victorious. Lord, we thank you for this, the, the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, no matter what the trials are in our lives, discipline or not, we thank you that they're always an opportunity for growth, and always an opportunity for joy. And I pray that we would take that truth with us into every circumstance and every situation we find ourselves in down the road. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.